The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. What is the lowdown, Dr. Eastman? We're all going crazy. You'll be accused of assassination the first thing you know. The president is still unconscious. Oh, we've printed that one line for weeks. No one believes it. I was here when Wilson was sick and Harding too, and no one ever dared hide the news from us. I should say Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 13th, 2023. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be If some of what you hear today is news to you, even though it occurred 60 years ago, then I imagine you've got a lot of company. Our good friends Salim Mansour and Robert got together on America's just past July 4th Independence Day celebration for a retrospective and introspective look at where America is today certainly contrasted against the America of 60 years ago, and in particular with regard to John F. Kennedy's not-so-well-known peace speech delivered on June 10, 1963. Their entire discussion was posted to Just Right's video channels and platforms this past weekend. On today's broadcast, we'll be highlighting the essentials of that conversation, along with providing selected short excerpts of Kennedy's original 1963 speech along the way. 2023 marks the 60th anniversary of the West's descent into tyranny, which has now placed us on the brink of nuclear war, not so unlike conditions of 60 years ago. Not surprising, then, that we should look to history for the clues that led to our current crisis and for the clues that might lead us out of the crisis. That discussion begins right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. I'm joined by our good friend, Salim Mansur, Professor Emeritus at the University of Western Ontario. Good day, Salim. Good day, uh, Robert. I know from our previous discussions, both public and private, that we both grew up loving the United States of America for what it stood for. It's a nation created to protect the inalienable rights of the individual and the first nation to explicitly do so. Our attitudes towards America were shaped not only by the history books, but by the rose-tinted attitudes of Hollywood and the television programs airing from New York City. Recent events have given us both a sobering and more mature look at that great nation. While we still admire the spirit of 76 and celebrate the Declaration of Independence on this July 4th, which is the date that you and I are having this discussion, We've reluctantly come to realize that there is a sinister underbelly to the land of the free. 60 years ago, President John F. Kennedy delivered his peace speech. In it, I believe we see both the hope for the future we felt growing up in the shadow of that great nation, and likewise, perhaps the naivete that would eventually end 
Kennedy's life months later and usher in decades of American imperialistic war efforts throughout the globe via their military industrial complex and what became known as the deep state. So today I would like us to revisit Kennedy's historic speech and remark on how such a man as John F. Kennedy would become perhaps the single most pivotal man in modern world history and why his sentiments made during that great speech should give us pause about the way the world is treating Russia in its current conflict with America and NATO being played out by proxy in Ukraine. And um, just to put it in context, we have to understand this, that Kennedy's speech was given at a time when many thought that the world was going to be embroiled in a nuclear war. It was delivered not long after the Cuban Missile Crisis, October of 62. But today, we are again under the threat, believe it or not, of a nuclear war. But God help us, we do not have a John F. Kennedy in the Oval Office. We have the likes of the usurper, Joe Biden, perhaps one of the most despicable presidents our good neighbors have ever come to endure. So, Salim, what are your impressions looking back on John F. Kennedy's peace speech? Yeah, thank you, uh, Robert. Yes, you're absolutely on the mark when you bring forth John Kennedy's speech that he gave on June 10th, 1963, as a commencement address at the American University. That speech was, in a sense, now looking back, possibly the most important speech that JFK gave during his first term in office that was cut short by his murder in November uh, 1963. And it was a speech that many historians now who have written about Kennedy, and I too agree with it, that this was the inflection point in Kennedy's relationship with the American intelligence agencies, the premier one CIA, and the military-industrial complex. Kennedy's life ended because Kennedy came into a very serious conflict with the three power blocks within America. He enraged those three power blocks by his actions. And this speech was the inflection point. The three power blocks were the American CIA and the MIC, Military Industrial Complex. I'll speak about that. The organized crime syndicate in America, the mafia, and Israel and Israel's American lobby. The last one, people don't want to talk about it too much. It is, in a sense, brushed aside uh, or not discussed in depth. Those who have discussed it, their books are not readily available. Those historians have been shunned and censored. The other two, CIA and um, the military-industrial complex, is the one that is openly now talked about. As you know, Tucker Carlson, in one of his monologues, directly and openly stated what many have known or understood, that it was the murderer of uh, President Kennedy Behind that murder was the CIA and the military-industrial complex. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is now running Kennedy's nephew, John Kennedy's nephew, son of 
Robert F. Kennedy, who also was assassinated in 1968, is now running for the nomination of the Democratic Party. In a, in a sense, he's challenging Joe Biden for the presidency in the Democratic Party. He has spoken out recently very openly about the role of the CIA and the military-industrial complex in the murder of his uncle, the president. So yes, I mean, the speech, and once, once we get to analyze the speech or look in the speech, we'll see how far-reaching, how much, in a sense, ahead of his time, uh, John F.K. was in delivering that speech. And then that speech became the instrument that brought about the negotiation with Soviet Union Premier Khrushchev, President Kennedy's Soviet partner on the other side, a negotiation that led to the first major treaty between the two nuclear superpowers, the limited test ban treaty of September 1963. So yes, this speech is very important. It lays down the president's thinking, his administration's thinking about how to proceed. President Kennedy was looking forward to, this is 1963, he was looking forward to running in 1964 for his second term. And we will never know what he would have done in the second term. But in the first term with this speech, he laid down the groundwork of what he called ending the conflict with Soviet Union that is beginning the nuclear disarmament and thereby ending the Cold War uh, that had begun immediately after the end of World War II in 1945. President Anderson, members of the faculty, board of trustees, distinguished guests, my old colleague, Senator Bob Byrd, who has earned his degree through many years of attending Knight Law School. While I am earning mine in the next 30 minutes, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it is with great pride that I participate in this ceremony of the American University, sponsored by the Methodist Church, founded by Bishop John Fletcher Hurst, and first opened by President Woodrow Wilson in 1914. This is a young and growing university, but it has already fulfilled Bishop Hearst's enlightened hope for the study of history and public affairs in a city devoted to the making of history and to the conduct of the public's business. There are few earthly things more beautiful than a university, wrote John Macefield in his tribute to English universities, and his words are equally true today. He did not refer to towers or to campuses. He admired the splendid beauty of a university because it was, he said, a place where those who hate ignorance may strive to know, where those who perceive truth may strive to make others see. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived. And that is the most important topic on earth, peace. I am not referring to the absolute, infinite concept 
of universal peace and goodwill of which some fantasies and fanatics dream. I do not deny the value of hopes and dreams, but we merely invite discouragement and incredulity by making that our only and immediate goal. Let us focus instead on a more practical, more attainable peace, based not on a sudden revolution in human nature, but on a gradual evolution in human institutions, on a series of concrete actions and effective agreements, which are in the interests of all concerned. Genuine peace must be the product of many nations, the sum of many acts. It must be dynamic, not static, for peace is a process, a way of solving problems. With such a peace, there will still be quarrels and conflicting interests, as there are within families and nations. World peace, like community peace, does not require that each man love his neighbor. It requires only that they live together in mutual tolerance, submitting their disputes to a just and peaceful settlement. There's a part in his speech, Salim, that I'd like to address, that is the naivete of Kennedy. Let me just read a passage from his speech that put it into context. He says, it is discouraging to read a recent authoritative Soviet text on military strategy and find on page after page wholly baseless and incredible claims, such as the allegation that, quote, American imperialist circles are preparing to unleash different types of wars, that there is a very real threat of a preventative war being unleashed by American imperialists against the Soviet Union, and that the political aims of the American imperialists are to enslave economically and politically the European and other capitalist countries and to achieve world domination by means of aggressive wars. And then Kennedy went on to say, America's weapons are non-provocative, carefully controlled, designed to deter and capable of selective use. Our military forces are committed to peace and disciplined in self-restraint. Our diplomats are instructed to avoid unnecessary irritants and purely rhetorical hostility. Now, at the time, I would have believed that wholly. You know, he gave that speech. I was just a baby. You were probably about 10 years old. But of course, we grew up with the United States that we knew at the time, which was, we thought, a benevolent, virtuous nation founded on principles that we would both agree with, the defense of inalienable individual rights. And so we would have taken that and say, yes, of course, the actions that the United States are doing overseas and throughout the world are reactions to threats to that virtuous nation. Now, of course, in hindsight, and especially today with the proxy war in the Ukraine, and, and as history has unfolded and we find out about the deep state and the military industrial complex more and more, I have to say that what Kennedy said there was naive and naive to the point that it actually got him killed because he didn't realize the threat. Now, this is not to diminish, of course, from John F. Kennedy's greatness or the greatness of that particular speech, which was a, a speech of peace. And I would never expect an American president to come out and say, we're a warmongering nation of belligerence. Of course, he couldn't say that. So perhaps he could have to say that we're only using our weapons 
you know, in matters of peace. But, you know, there was the Vietnam War. There were so many other incursions throughout the world. They're endless. You can, there's a list of them on many pages on the internet, lists of them, and the number of people who have died. Why? Not because the United States was attacked by any of these nations, but because of economic reasons, oil, threats, you know, other responsibilities to protect and other things like that, you know, with the United Nations. And so what do you think of what I would say is the ignorance or naivete of John F. Kennedy in that regard? Well, the part of the passage that you have read from his speech about the Soviet perception or perspective of the United States, you know, that's what he's talking about, that the Soviet text on military strategy find page after page wholly baseless and incredible claim, you know, such as the allegation that American imperial circles are preparing to unleash different types of wars and so on and so forth, you know. So he lays down the Soviet perspective. There has been a crisis. The speech has been delivered in 1963, seven months after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So let's put it in context, you know. Seven months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the 13 days in October 1962, what was the lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know? And that's the lesson when this U.S.-led proxy war against the Russian Federation began in 2022. What I pointed out in some of my writings, and also I think we did a few discussion on that matter, that on the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the two most powerful nuclear nations, United States and Russian Federation, as the successor state of the Soviet Union, are edging towards a war which has all the potential of a nuclear war breaking out, escalating to that level, you know, which is what 60 years earlier in the Cuban Missile Crisis, President John F. Kennedy and his counterpart, Khrushchev, came eye to eye, so to speak, that October, and then avoided the escalation. Soviet Union withdrew from the quarantine around Cuba that President Kennedy administration had put together after the discovery that the Soviets had placed or were building a missile emplacement in Cuba, and that they would then put in nuclear warheads on the missile and uh, nuclear capability would be 90 miles away from the American heartland. And so that led to the crisis, you know, when President Kennedy said that this has to be removed, and it was eventually removed. But in the midst of that removal of the Soviet missiles from Cuba, it was also agreed by President which was not given the same broadcast at the same time, that America would remove the missiles from Turkey on the borders of Soviet Union, right? So a few months later, the American missiles were removed from Turkey, nuclear missiles were removed. So that's the context, seven months earlier, you know. And then five months later, he was killed. So one has to examine what he is saying. I would also further add that President Kennedy grew in office. And the Cuban Missile Crisis was the event that growth in the president that developed. It, was sad. it has been said, especially like uh, somebody like Jeffrey Sachs, that his first two years as president were nothing, ineffective, you know. Uh, well, the president came to office with a very narrow win, right, over the Republican nominee candidate who was the vice president during the Eisenhower administration, that is Richard Nixon in the 1960 election, November 1960, it was 
a very narrow win. And there are allegations that that win was engineered in Illinois by the Chicago mayor, Richard Daly. That means the, the vote was rigged. You know, those are the allegations. So it was a very narrow win. John F. Kennedy was the youngest president elected in 1960. He was in his early 40s. He was 42 years old or something like that, going on to 43. He had served as a senator, congressman and senator, before he ran for the nomination of the Democratic Party in 1960. So he was a very young man. And he was, during that time when he was in the Senate, and then when he was running for the office in the 1960 election, he was very much a man who could be called a military hawk. The previous candidate, the Democratic candidate, in the two election that was lost to the Republican Dwight Eisenhower, that is Adlai Stevenson, was known to be a United Nation man, a peace man, and so on and so forth. And he had lost. Part of the argument was the weakness of the Democratic Party on the issue of defense. I mean, that's been one of the Achilles heel of the charge or by the conservatives in America, that the Democrats have been weak on issues of defense. You know, there was a whole history after the war in 1945 that emerged under President Truman, the previous uh, Democratic president, who lost China. And the whole, you know, Joe McCarthy affair about the weakness of the Democrats and the penetration in Washington, in the highest offices, in the State Department, in the Pentagon, in the Treasury, and so on, of people suspected of being Soviet fifth columnists, you know, people like Alger Hiss, Theodore Dexter White, and others. So that was the background. And in that background, one has to be able to understand the position on which Senator Kennedy came out seeking his office. And he had to neutralize the criticism of the Republicans. The Republican president, the outgoing president, was a war hero. He was a five-star general, the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe, President Dwight Eisenhower, or General Eisenhower, and President Dwight Eisenhower, you know, a man in, in that sense, as a military man, with almost an impeccable record in terms of his place in American politics. He had been the supreme commander after the war, or when NATO was created. He was the first supreme commander of NATO. Uh, and and Nixon was his vice president. So here was now Nixon, the nominee, and Kennedy's team, and Kennedy had to at least neutralize the argument that Kennedy would be soft on the communists, soft on the Soviet Union. And then in 1959, you had the Cuban Revolution. Cuba was a domestic issue. It was not simply a foreign policy issue. It became a domestic issue with Cuban emigre, you know, leaving Cuba, rushing into America. The entire organized crime that had its interest in Cuba got, you know, thrown out of Cuba after the revolution, who came into America and so on and so forth. So that is a very important domestic factor in terms of whether Senator Kennedy would be strong enough to deal 
with the world that is divided between communists and the free world led by United States of America. So in that election campaign, one of the issues that Senator Kennedy ran with and charged the Eisenhower administration with was the missile gap that America had not done enough to build up its own military weaponry and so on to deal with the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union had taken the lead in 1958 with the Sputnik. Soviet Union has shown that, you know, it's rocketry and now it is going into space. So all of that is at play. And it is in that context that one must read the line that you have read in this speech is that President Kennedy is not turning soft. He's still strong. He understands the position and he's speaking as the leader of the free world. He has come out of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He has negotiated with Khrushchev. The Soviets withdrew their missiles and secretly Kennedy agreed that American missiles would be withdrawn from Turkey. So given that context, I would say to you that it is not that Kennedy is being naive. It's Kennedy came into in this confrontation as that moment in which he realized how close America and Soviet Union had come to what he describes just a few sentences ahead, that whatever we have built up together in this world can be turned into ashes in 24 hours. You know, so, so that is the context. On the personal side is the fact that Kennedy is also a war hero. Kennedy was a naval man and Kennedy had fought in the Pacific. And let us re-examine re our attitude towards the Soviet Union. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger than our mutual abhorrence of war. Almost unique among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. And no nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union in the Second World War. At least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and families were burned or sacked. A third of the nation's territory, including two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland, a loss equivalent to the destruction of this country east of Chicago. Today, should total war ever break out again, no matter how, our two countries will be the primary target. It is an ironic but accurate fact that the two strongest powers are the two in the most danger of devastation. All we have built, all we have worked for, would be destroyed in the first 24 hours. In short, both the United States and its allies and the Soviet Union and its allies have a mutually deep interest in a just and genuine peace and in holding the arms race. Agreements to this end are in the interests of the Soviet Union as well as ours. And even the most hostile nations can be relied upon to accept and keep those treaty obligations and only those treaty obligations which are in their own interest. So let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests 
and the means by which those differences can be resolved. Speaking of other nations, I wish to make one point clear. We are bound to many nations by alliances. These alliances exist because our concern and theirs substantially overlap. Our commitment to defend Western Europe and West Berlin, for example, stands undiminished because of the identity of our vital interests. The United States will make no deal with the Soviet Union at the expense of other nations and other peoples, not merely because they are our partners, but also because their interests and ours converge. Our interests converge, however, not only in defending the frontiers of freedom, but in pursuing the paths of peace. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And here again is Salim Mansour. We are looking back. We are trying to understand. And we are looking at this whole situation, not only in the context that this year, 2023, is the 60th anniversary of the assassination of JFK, the murder of JFK. But this year is also where 60 years after the assassination of Kennedy, the threat of a nuclear war is right in front of our face. The war that is going on, a proxy war that is going on in Ukraine against the Russian Federation. if you again, you go back to the speech and you look at the speech, at one point, President Kennedy says that among all the great powers of the world, America and Russia has never fought a war. Right? So that was 60 years ago. In fact, not that America and Russia had never fought a war, America and Russia had been allies. Yes in what is considered the greatest war of 20th century by Americans, by Europeans, by Canadians, because this is the good war that Canada, America, Britain, and the Commonwealth countries fought against Germany. Well, yes, if this is a good war, who was your ally? Soviet Union, Russia, that's been forgotten. But in 1963, when Kennedy was giving this speech, none of that was forgotten because this was absolutely proximate. He was dealing with all of the issues that is around. The the other thing is very important, that the most important speech until that moment, when Kennedy gives the speech, the commencement address in June 10, 1963. And by the way, the speech is so important, and yet the American press basically wrote it off. Within a couple of days, the speech was gone from headline. Nobody well, he was... says, he says, perhaps to that point, he says in his speech that peace is not as dramatic as war. And what, what sells papers? Peace it, doesn't sell papers. Exactly. So the, the speech was lost. The speech was brushed away. However, this speech was given great prominence in Soviet Union. Khrushchev, it it. It's an entirety. It was read in its entirety. The uh, speech was broadcast on the uh, radio and television network without being censored. 
So it was an opposite reaction. So the most important speech before this speech of June 30th was the speech that was given by President Eisenhower on the last day of his second term, just before he left the White House in 1961, January 17, 1961, just of John F. Kennedy as the new incoming president. What was the speech that Eisenhower gave? That was the speech about the military industrial complex. He warned the American people to be aware of what is happening to their country. You know, and he laid it out. That speech should be read in conjunction with this speech. And so President Kennedy is aware of that speech. That's the military industrial complex. And who's warning America about the military industrial complex? That your republic is under threat? That your republic might be taken away from you? Is a man who was the leader of the American or the Allied forces in the Second World War, the Supreme Commander, the five star general? Right. And here President Kennedy is coming in. So again, that's the context. And so what does he lay out? Right at the outset, he says, I have chosen this time and place. He's telling the students, he's telling the, the audience, I've chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth is too rarely perceived. Yet it is the most important topic on earth, world peace. And then he carries on. World peace. Seven months after the Cuban Missile Crisis that could have turned into a nuclear war, a nuclear exchange between the two military superpowers. What he continues with, actually, I found really profound, yes. is that he's not talking about a peace in some sort of unrealistic, what we have come to know, Sailovica, kumbaya type of peace, Nick, hippie type of peace, which is totally foreign to human nature, really. And he says, what kind of peace do I mean? What kind of peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I'm talking about a genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes the life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow into hope and build a life for their children. Not merely a peace for Americans, but for peace for all men and women, not peace in our time, but peace for all time. So he's a very much a realist. He understands the reality of human nature. That came through, I think, when I, in my reading of it. Not a Pax Americana. In other words, where we are today, 60 years later, rule-based order, American unipolarity, American hegemony, 900 military bases around the world. America will impose everything on the rest of the world, yeah. right? And President John F. Kennedy saying, no, not a Pax America enforced on the world by American weapons of war, a peace negotiated under the United Nations by equal powers, each side recognizing. He goes on to say, I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. Yes. Wonderful it's not kumbaya. Yeah. This is the peace of ration, necessary rational end of rational men. In the very next passage, this to me, one of the most striking features, he was the first president who said it, 
and no precedent since then. Let me read it to you. I mean, it's the very next passage. Some say that it is useless to speak of world peace or world law or world disarmament, and that it will be useless until the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. This is the opposite of what you read in the beginning, you know, where he talks about what the Soviets think about America as an imperialist country. So here is the Americans or the free world saying, we can't have peace unless the Soviet Union have a more enlightened mind. In other words, the Soviet Union become like us, you know. More to that point, Salim, and, and remember, this was played in its entirety in the Soviet Union, yes. who had massive control over censorship. They played that an American president saying that they are not enlightened. And he also said earlier on, with such a peace, there will still be quarrels and conflicting interests as there are within families and nations. World peace, like community peace, does not require that each man love his neighbor. He also insults, in a way, the communism of the Soviet Union. We find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity. This was played in the Soviet Union, you know, and not only that, this is contextual. He's not just saying, let's have peace with Russia because these are people too. We're all human beings, right? This is a conflict between ideologies and that. He's saying that, look, I recognize that your system of government is not like our system of government. To us, your system of government, communism, is repugnant. This is what he says. It's repugnant. However, he's saying we can still have peace with you. No, but I'm going to imply that that it's not our job to change your system of government. Yeah, peaceful coexistence. Yeah. But what you need to read, what needs to be brought out in the passage that we were reading, he says, I hope they do. They have a more enlightened attitude. I believe we can help them to do it. And here is the clincher. But I also believe that we must re-examine our own attitudes as individuals and as a nation. For our attitude is as essential as theirs. And every graduate of this school, every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude toward the possibilities of peace, toward the Soviet Union, toward the course of the Cold War, and toward freedom and peace here at home. Can you imagine a Joe Biden saying that? In my view, no president has ever spoken as John F. Kennedy speaking here. That is, we need to examine ourselves too. It's a very enlightened and mature way of looking at the conflict. It's not an us versus them. It's like, well, let's step up to 30,000 feet and see what's going on here. But, but it is not only Joe Biden. As I said to you, President Kennedy was the 35th president. Joe Biden is the 46th president. Now, if you want to run all the names after Kennedy, you know, from Johnson to Biden, you have people like Reagan. Remember, Reagan calling out the evil empire, yes. you know, Carter. Afghanistan war, on and on and on. The demonization of the other. We have also been talking in Geneva about our first step measures of arm controls. Our primary long range interest in Geneva, however, is general and complete disarmament, designed to take place by stages. 
permitting parallel political developments to build the new institutions of peace, which would take the place of arms. The pursuit of disarmament has been an effort of this government since the 1920s. It has been urgently sought by the past three administrations. And however dim the prospects are today, we intend to continue this effort, to continue it in order that all countries, including our own, can better grasp what the problems and the possibilities of disarmament are. The only major area of these negotiations where the end is in sight, yet where a fresh start is badly needed, is in a treaty to outlaw nuclear tests. The conclusion of such a treaty, so near and yet so far, would check the spiraling arms race in one of its most dangerous areas. It would place the nuclear powers in a position to deal more effectively with one of the greatest hazards which man faces in 1963, the further spread of nuclear arms. It would increase our security. It would decrease the prospects of war. Surely this goal is sufficiently important to require our steady pursuit, yielding neither to the temptation to give up the whole effort nor the temptation to give up our insistence on vital and responsible safeguards. I'm taking this opportunity, therefore, to announce two important decisions in this regard. First, Chairman Khrushchev, Prime Minister McMillan, and I have agreed that high-level discussions will shortly begin in Moscow, looking towards early agreement on a comprehensive test ban treaty. Our hopes must be tempered with the caution of history, but with our hopes go the hopes of all mankind. Second, to make clear our good faith and solemn convictions on this matter, I now declare that the United States does not propose to conduct nuclear tests in the atmosphere so long as other states do not do so. we will not be the first to resume. Such a declaration is no substitute for a formal binding treaty, but I hope it will help us achieve one. Finally, my fellow Americans, let us examine our attitude towards peace and freedom here at home. We must all, in our daily lives, live up to the age-old faith that peace and freedom walk together. In too many of our cities today, the peace is not secure because freedom is incomplete. It is the responsibility of the executive branch at all levels of government, local, state, and national, to provide and protect that freedom for all of our citizens, by all means, within our authority. And is not peace in the last analysis basically a matter of human rights, the right to live out our lives without fear of devastation, the right to breathe air as nature provided it, the right of future generations to a healthy existence? While we proceed to safeguard our national interests, 
let us also safeguard human interests. This speech that President Kennedy gave on June the 10th, 1963, was exactly a week after the death of Pope John the 23rd on June 3rd, 1963. Now remember, Kennedy is the first Catholic president. That was another chip beside the fact that his father was an appeaser. He was a Catholic running. No Catholic had ever won the nomination and gone ahead to become the president. You know, he had to deal with that issue in an America that was still a wasp country, majority wasp country. You know, this is before the open border, immigration, migration, multiculturalism, wokeism, and all of that that has come down the pipeline. You know, America is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country. And he's the first Catholic president. He does not refer to John the 23rd. The fact of the matter is, we can, by drawing the connection, John F.K. was very much impressed by John the 23rd. John the 23rd is possibly the key pope in the 20th century who inaugurates Vatican II and tries to open up the church from the medieval mindset of the earlier popes to the modern reality of the world. And during the Cuban Missile Crisis, John XXIII became you know, so concerned. He saw the dangers. He understood the danger of a nuclear war. And he did not remain as the current pope has remained on the sideline. He put his office into play to bring the two sides together to open up a discussion. He sent his emissary to Moscow to speak to Khrushchev and to Washington to speak to Kennedy. Who was his emissary? A man by the name of Norman Cousin, an American Catholic who was the editor-in-chief of the Saturday Review, which was possibly the most well-read and most circulated weekly magazine in America at that time, like the Life magazine, the Time magazine, Saturday Review, Norman Cousin. And John F. Kennedy, according to his biographers, immediately got hold of Norman Cousin, and Norman Cousin became the back channel between John F. Kennedy and Khrushchev, you see? So there is that other unstated reality. No president before Kennedy said, no government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. And then he says, but we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture and in acts of courage. This is at the height of the Cold War, seven months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the demonization of the Soviet Union and the Russian people, which is exactly what is going on right now, the Russophobia. And John F. Kennedy is trying to humanize, trying to educate the American people, trying to tell them we have to look inside ourselves. We have to examine ourselves. No people are devoid of goodness 
you know, lacking in virtue. And then he goes on to say, almost unique among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. In fact, about the context, it was Russians, Tsar Alexander II, who sent the Russian fleet to the Atlantic coast and to the Pacific coast during the Civil War to defend American Union, the Union of America, United States of America, against the European powers who were trying to take advantage to split America, particularly Britain. Again, that's been forgotten. So almost unique among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. No nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union suffered in the course of the Second World War. He recognizes that. That's amazing, yeah. At least 20 million lost their lives. Today we know it was much more than 20 million. But President Kennedy speaking in 1963, 20 million lost their life. Countless millions of homes and farms were burned or sacked. A third of the nation's territory, including nearly two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland, a loss equivalent to the devastation of this country east of Chicago. Just imagine that. From Chicago to the Atlantic coast, America destroyed. But America was untouched in the Second World War. America was untouched in the First World War, except for Hawaii, the Pearl Harbor. That is, mainland America did not get touched by the wars. But Soviet Union, 20 million people dead. Half the country destroyed, and so on and so forth. Which American president, we can ask, has spoken out so clearly, so with so much empathy and understanding? as John F.K. did on this occasion. I would say that John F.K. here characterized that almost epic virtue of a soldier. It is a soldier who recognizes the other soldier as a human being. We don't hear anything that Putin says. We don't see it in the media. I've been watching Putin speak. I've been going to the Kremlin website. I've been reading his speeches. And he comes across as a very rational, patriotic man, he believes that he's doing right by the Russians, ethnic Russians in the Donbass. He reached out for peace, uh, what was it, at least three times they met in Turkey with their Ukrainian counterparts. But who were the people to tell Zelensky and Ukraine not to have peace? America, Britain, NATO, we're the ones, we're now the warmongers. We are no longer peacemakers. Yes, absolutely. So you can see this speech is unique, given by a man who came to understand the other. And as I said in my opening remarks, president grew in the office. He grew in the office because the burden of the office made him rethink everything in terms of war and peace, which is the most important task of a leader of a country especially in the nuclear age. He understood, as I would argue, that there can be no just war in the nuclear age. The idea of a just war, we are right, they're wrong, you know, going all the way back to the Crusades. So at the time that K 
Kennedy was speaking in June of 1963, the speech, there were only four nuclear armed countries. And one of the concerns that Kennedy had was about nuclear proliferation. And that leads to the issue of Kennedy falling foul of the power blocks. And that was Israel and the American lobby, because Kennedy wanted to know about the Israeli Dimona project. He was aware that the Israelis were making their own secret efforts to acquire nuclear weapons. And he wanted to prevent that from happening because that was one of the part of the negotiation with the Soviet Union, you know, to begin the nuclear disarmament. First, you have to stop what he achieved doing, that is getting a limited test ban on atmospheric testing. And that happened in September of 1963, when um, what he had proposed and initial with Khrushchev was voted at the Senate by an overwhelming majority an overwhelming majority, 80 to 19 votes, 80 years to 19 nays, the Senate passed the treaty and adopted the treaty. That was a huge political victory for Kennedy, but also in retrospect, it was his death sentence. Nobody has come forth ever since to reach out to the other in the manner in which Kennedy was laying the ground to reach out. And that's how far derailed America has become. In fact, America has morphed into the leading rogue state in the world today. It is a shame that we have to admit such a thing. How the mighty have fallen. Look at the United States today, and as you say, it may be a rogue state. It's, it's quite a shame, and it's, it's something to be not only attacked, and we should, we, we should confront this as we're doing right now, but it should be lamented. I mean, it's sad for that to go from being an ideal politically and philosophically of individual rights and inalienable rights to what we have today, which is warmongering, leaders who are more children than they are men. It just speaks volumes to the decay of the Western culture, doesn't it? Precisely. And what and how things change in terms of the great issues of our time, war and peace, freedom based upon individual right, one law for all, you know. These things have all been in some ways derailed, been corrupted, you know. The sanctity of election, the trust in the institutions of government, you know, all of this now has been exposed as corrupt and as part of what President Trump called out the swamp, the deep state and the swamp. So to understand where we have arrived, it is necessary to have a picture of where we were at some point in time from where we have departed. And Kennedy was, in that sense, the pivotal moment. If you take the language of the Americans at that time in the history of the free world, because the other half of the world was under, that is, Soviet Union and then China was uh, under the communists. So the free world. Well, Canada was part of the free world. We were at the center of the free world, in the sense, at the closest ally of the United States. And I would, I would therefore say that if Kennedy had lived, we would be in a different world. That is, the murder of Kennedy, in effect, was 
the victory of the deep state. All the leaders in Europe, that is part of the European Union today, NATO today, there is not one single leader that stand out in terms of a de Gaulle, again, the same generation, World War II, you know, a leader, you know, not one, you know. He was a nationalist. He was a proud Frenchman, you know, and, and he defended his country. He talked, de Gaulle talked about it, not Churchill, not any of the uh, British leaders. It was de Gaulle talked about one Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals. What does that mean, Urals? That means Russia. That means Soviet Union. That Russia is part of Europe, is bound up with European history. And that's what Kennedy was saying. This is the peace that I'm talking about is of rational men. It's a necessary peace of rational men dealing with man-made problem that we can together work and bring it to an end. Since Kennedy's speech, incrementally, as you said, inch by inch, in the last 60 years, the spirit of 76, the glory that was the United States at that time, has devolved, as has every other country in the Western world, I think, especially Canada. Canada is not the Canada I was born into. Salim, I, I, I thank you for this. This has been a fascinating discussion for, about a very pivotal man in history and a great speech by such a man. In so many ways, he was so far ahead of his time, you know, and, and the, the evil forces in America, which could still be contained, was let loose after President Kennedy was murdered. Yeah. What a shame. Thank you, Salim. Thank you. Just one last observation of my own to make, spurred by the fact that Kennedy's 63 speech was played in its entirety in the Soviet Union while being ignored and hidden in the Western media. Has this been a pattern for longer than we've been aware? Over the past two to three years, the only source that we could rely on to see what was happening with regard to the anti-lockdown protests in Europe and to the developments in Ukraine and Russia was amazingly RT News, the Russian news network that was sending live, uncensored images around the world during the height of the so-called COVID pandemic. And most importantly, over time, their reports and newscasts have proven themselves to be true and valid, while the Western media has become, very ironically, the Pravda of the 21st century. How is it that our media got everything just wrong, but Russian reports got it just right? Similarly, looking back on past broadcasts of this show, we continue to bat a thousand on calling the shots and have never had to take a step back over any issues involving anything like misinformation or disinformation. And I know that we have fans of this show in Russia. And I hope that you, like they, will join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. It's going to snow again. The weather is getting a little nippy. Yeah, it's a good thing the mail arrived. <laughs> <laughs>
Why? Are you expecting any warm clothing? No, I use the letters to cover holes in me underwear. I could use a few letters myself. Yeah, in your case, Schultz, you'd need the New York Times. Sunday edition. 